You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. All right, guys, welcome to today's show. And joining me on the show today, I've got an awesome guest. He currently lives in Arizona, but he was born and raised in Pennsylvania. He's been down in Arizona for about 15 years now. And it's just really cool to hear the stories of that transition, going from being an Eastern hunter to a Western hunter and the different types of opportunity, the different types of equipment that you need for it. And so I'm really pumped to talk to Steven Tyrol today. We're going to jump into a lot of different hunting stories and tactics and and just that that whole difference between the two different regions of the country. But he has drawn some amazing tags and had great success. So I'm pumped. Let's jump in. You're listening to The Western Rookie, a hunting podcast full of tips, tricks, and strategies from seasoned Western hunters. There are plenty of opportunities out there. We just need to learn how to take on the challenges. Hunting is completely different up there. I've probably seen 26 big game animals. You can fool their eyes, but you can't fool their nose. 300 yards back to the road turned into three miles back the other way. It's always cool seeing new hunters go and harvest an animal. I don't know what to expect. If there's anybody I want in the woods with me, it'll be you. All right, guys, welcome to today's show. And joining me on the show today is Stephen Tyrol. Now, Stephen is a guy originally from Pennsylvania. Now he's living down in Arizona. And even just in talking with him for the first couple minutes, it sounds like he has kind of paradise right out his back door. And so we're going to dive into how he got into hunting, what he's hunting now, what the difference between Pennsylvania and Arizona is, because I've got a feeling that's got to be a pretty steep learning curve. But Steven, thanks for hopping on the show, man. Thanks for having me, Dan. I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, looking forward to our chat here. Um, but yeah, I am from Pennsylvania. I lived there for the first 23 years of my life. And, uh, then I made the move out to 
Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, my time in Pennsylvania. You know, I grew up in Bucks County, which there was no shortage of deer anywhere. Um, They're just running around all over the place. And, you know, we hunt them the traditional way out of tree stands, one pin on your bow, you know, and uh, you only need to shoot out to 20 yards. We also did a lot of uh, rifle deer hunting. We'd always go up to uh, northern PA, almost near the New York border. And uh, that was uh, the first way I was introduced to hunting along with the archery. But uh, like I've heard on one of your podcasts before, you know, everybody dresses up in orange. And uh, I think you called it like the Orange Army. But that's exactly how, you know, we would do it in Pennsylvania. There's certain orange requirements and, uh, you know, we do rifle season right after Thanksgiving. And then after that, there wasn't really much until Turkey. Um, and when I moved out here to Arizona, you know, I had to almost learn to hunt all over again. You know, my binoculars weren't going to cut it out here. And, uh, there was a huge learning curve. You almost need to have like a mentor or somebody to help you out along the way. I got lucky and I got met some great friends out here that I connected with for hunting and, you know, they kind of showed me the ropes and, uh, I learned a little bit from each of them and then kind of implemented, you know, my own strategy with it. And the last, I don't know, five or six years have really been awesome. Um, myself, I've drawn some awesome tags here in Arizona and the opportunity to hunt is just, uh, it's just amazing compared to Pennsylvania, you know, no offense to back East. I mean, I grew up hunting back there, but out here, it's just a whole nother game. And, uh, you really got to kind of know what you're doing a little bit and you really got to do your homework. I mean, a lot of the animals that I shoot, I feel like I shoot them when I'm scouting for them weeks and weeks before the hunt even starts. That's when, you know, I'm really getting, you know, honed in on them and where they are and what they're doing and where I want to go. But, uh, but yeah, being from Pennsylvania, coming to Arizona, the landscape's totally opposite. The weather's opposite. Everything is just, uh, very, very different and you just got to learn it. And, uh, I know we were talking about coyote calling earlier, but through coyote calling in the off season, we go and call different areas. And when we go do that, we're learning new landscapes, different units, new spots. And it's a way to go hunting and do a little scouting at the same time. And uh, a lot of the places when you do hunt in Arizona, there's, you know, elk and deer in the same spots. There's elk and antelope in some of the same spots. So you can come across a variety of different game, even javelina, as you're calling coyotes. And then you're like, oh, I saw a nice bull elk on this fence line. We'll have to come back and check that out, you know, if we're scouting for an elk tag or you know, apply that to any species really. Um, so the coyote calling is great just for, uh, you know, scouting also besides an off season activity. Yeah. It's, it's cool when you can get out and do one thing that you love and you're benefiting yourself for a hunt later on down the road. I mean, I've seen the same thing here in Missouri. In fact, I, it's weird. The response that I've seen to coyote calling from deer I have had multiple times now where I'm calling with a, like either a hand call or an electronic call and I'll be, I'll be doing like a cottontail rabbit squeal and all of a sudden I see a doe and a couple of yearlings pop out in the field or one time I had a 
I had a buck. I mean, it wasn't a huge buck, but it was like a basket rack eight. It walked into bow range, but I, you know, didn't have my bow and it wasn't archery season, but it walked right into bow range as I'm calling for coyotes. And I thought that was kind of interesting yeah. to see how they just, they, they seemed almost more curious than they were alarmed by that call. And this whole time I'm like, it, it just seems like it always happens that way. When you're out hunting one thing, you see a ton of the other thing, you know, whether it's coyotes and deer or, yeah. you know, you're squirrel hunting, there's deer everywhere. You're deer hunting, there's squirrel, squirrels everywhere. Yeah. No, I usually tell people that it's like Murphy's law or everything that can go wrong will go wrong. And whenever yeah. I'm on a hunt with somebody, I'm like, I know we're on an elk hunt, but we're probably going to see antelope, javelina, deer, and everything but elk. But, um... Yeah, no, that's definitely how it happens a lot of the time. And most of the time when I go hunting, it's just a lot of failing until the stars align and everything comes together. You know, some people, you know, see the every day, oh, I was just glassing for five hours and didn't see anything <laughs> or, uh, you know, those type of days. Yeah. And I mean, like, like you said, it's got to be just a totally different world going from, pennsylvania down there i mean to have 20 yards is kind of your range with your bow to down there i mean you're talking open country where you might see an antelope or a an elk or a buck at a half a mile and then you have to close that distance yeah. in whereas hunting big woods it seems like a lot of the northern states wisconsin uh i grew up hunting there you just kind of sit and whatever walks in front of you you decide hey am i going to shoot this or am i not uh, whereas out there you can really, you can really figure out a core area that a deer likes to hang out and then go back later on in the season and, and try to make a move on it. So that's pretty sweet. Yeah, it is. It is super fun out here. Um, cause back East you are, like you said, you're sitting in a tree stand or you're sitting somewhere and you're just waiting and out here, you know, you get to be more aggressive and go after, you know, said game. And you do need high-powered uh, optics on a tripod, without a doubt. And it's really fun because, you know, usually if you're going to be out here, you have, like, at least one or two people with you, unless you're hunting solo. But you really need those other guys and those other hunters to help you out as, like, spotting and walking you in. So it's so much like a team game out here. And if anybody, you know, gets successful – you know, everybody that was with you that was walking you in and keeping eyes on that deer or that elk, everybody is super, super excited for you because it's such, you know, like a team game out here. And uh, being able to use like walkie talkies and being walked in and like, you know, having your buddies watching it all go down, hopefully videotaping it through their binoculars is, uh, it's just an awesome, awesome thing because, you know, back east, especially in Bucks County, you know, you can shoot tons of deer. Uh, you can get unlimited doe tags usually. And uh, out here, you know, I just feel like the actual harvesting of the animal doesn't happen that much because uh, it is so difficult because you do have to shoot a bow so far. Uh, and the terrain is ridiculous, you know, just to get close to whatever animal you're stalking. It could be like a mile or more maybe. Yeah. You know, so you, re you really got to earn it out west here. So every kill is very, very special. And uh, like I said, whenever one of my buddies shoots something and I was there helping, you know, that's just like me shooting something. I feel the same amount of happiness and excitement and all that stuff that comes with it 
I'm just as jacked up for my friend than I would be if I shot it myself. Yeah, it's always fun to be part of an experience like that, whether or not you're the one that pulls the trigger. You know, like when my buddies call me and they say, hey, I drew this tag. I'm like, dude, I'm taking off work. Let's let's make it happen. Let's go find it. And uh, even even when we're at elk camp in Colorado, we get the call. Hey, we got a bull down. This is where we're at. You know, it's fun to be a part of it because it really does break up the hunt, too, because if you're out there for, say, 10 days chasing after an animal and you're just struggling to get close or struggling to find something that you want to go after and then all of a sudden somebody else gets one down it, it kind of like rejuvenates you it kind of boosts your spirit a little bit like hey this is happening this can happen let's go help him and then we'll get back to the hunt and then in country like oh. that it's impossible to glass the whole thing unless you have a whole team of people you know me and two buddies will be sitting on this mountainside glassing a whole valley or an opposing ridge line, and you know, there could be, there could be five of us sitting there glassing and it seems like nobody's seeing anything. And one person will be like, Hey, I'm pretty sure I just saw like an, a leg move underneath that cedar tree and everyone like turns, starts looking and then someone else picks up an elk and then another one. And it's like, without that many people, it's, it's nearly impossible to cover that much ground with one guy and a pair of binos. Yeah. More, the more eyeballs, the better. And uh, how we usually do it with my crew that I hunt with, like whoever glasses it up gets to decide if they want to go after it or not. And then if they don't, then it's kind of like, you know, whoever maybe wants to shoot something smaller or whatever the case may be, or somebody didn't shoot anything yet, you know, or their tag's going to burn before the end of the year. Um, but yeah, whoever glasses it up gets to go after it. And it's super helpful having all those eyes out there. I mean, you really need it. And if somebody else does shoot one in your same party or something, it does rejuvenate you, gives you a little kick in your butt, little get the mojo going, you know, and it does yeah. break up the hunt. And most likely they probably need help packing that animal out of wherever it died because, uh, you know, you're not moving an elk anywhere. Uh, like if it's on a hillside or somewhere steep, uh, mule deer are a little different. I mean, they're a lot less in weight, so you know, they're a little bit more manageable, but you usually do need a crew of guys and that team atmosphere really makes it fun. Yeah. I, uh, I've experienced that a couple times now where I shoot an elk and I'm just like, dude, I don't even know where to begin with this. You know, I'm four miles back <laughs> in here and yeah. this happened to me this year. You know, I shot one and all of my buddies we're like, dude, don't ever shoot an elk back here. It is just nasty. Like it's impossible to get it out. <laughs> and this elk, once I got my eyes on it, I was like, I don't care what everybody else says. In fact, I will spend the next nine days just taking bits of meat out every day by myself if I have to, because I'm taking this elk right now. And luckily they all bombed in and helped out, but it it's, I can't imagine. I really can't imagine going in day after day by yourself, packing out heavy packs of meat and then, you know, having to process it. Like, dude, turning that elk over by myself, I quartered that whole thing out by myself and it was a pain. I'm like trying to tie legs to trees so that I can like shift it without it sliding down the mountain. And it did. I mean, it slid like 15 feet down at one point and, uh, you know, it just, Damn it becomes a pain pretty quick. So having that support group and that group of guys is definitely a game changer. 
Yeah. Chop or field dressing an elk and quartering it out is a undertaking. You know, you definitely need help. And to do it yourself, I mean, geez, uh, that's a, you, you are all the man if you can do that yourself. I mean, that's a real like hunting gamer type attitude where, you know, you're such a gnarly gung ho hunter that you're like, I don't care how bad the terrain is. I'm going to shoot this thing and I'm going to pack it out and I'll find a way to get it back to the truck. Even if it takes me like 24 straight hours to like, you know, go back and forth. That's, uh, that's pretty awesome. Cause like you said, you can't control where they're going to shoot and die and you know, wherever they, you know, expire at, that's where you're doing it. <laughs> and yeah. you know, if you're a, a sportsman and an ethical hunter, you know, you would never, ever just let that meat go to waste or be like, oh, it's too far. I don't feel like it. Like you would have to obviously do right by the animal and yourself and like the hunting gods, like, you know, go in and get that thing. Yeah. And uh, I, ha- I haven't had to do an elk by myself, but I'm glad I haven't had to. I've had at least two or three people with every one that I've shot or somebody else's shot. So, yeah, I've had a whole team of people that have come in and helped you know the first the first elk i shot it was just me and one other guy and we got it and it was quite a ways back in there um and then we had two other guys that came in to help out the next elk i shot i was with three guys that were like all shooting and then a bunch of other people that were like following us in you know teenage kids and kids of the guys i was with and and they came in and we got this elk down and we had like eight or nine people that bombed in to help out. And it was really funny because I actually didn't even pack out any meat. I, I was like grabbing <laughs> all of my gear. I was cleaning my hands, you know, cause it was like me and one or two other people that were quartering this thing out and boning it out in the field and everybody else is loading their bags full of meat. And so by the time I get my hands cleaned up a little bit and get my gear back together, I turn around and my pack's empty and everyone's already hoofing it up the mountain. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Like, this is pretty awesome. Uh, And it it kind (laughs) of worked out because I got like a mile away from the kill, maybe three quarters of a mile away from the kill. And there was a mule deer and I reached down for my binos and they weren't on my chest. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. Where are they? And so I had to jog back to the kill site and I had set them up on this like scrub oak and they had fallen down in the middle of it, which is why I didn't realize they were missing when I when I grabbed my pack. Um, but anyways, that that was insane. And this elk this year, I I shot it. Uh, there was one guy with me when I shot it. He walked me over to it because I had to drop down this steep canyon. It was nasty, and uh, he stayed back to help me walk or help walk me over to the spot where it went down. Um, but quartering that thing out myself, I got three quarters and one of the back straps, um, all out and in bags and it rolled down the, or it slid down the mountain and it got bound up under this cedar tree. And I was like, man, when everybody, or if anybody comes to help me tomorrow, like we're going to have to get back into this and get the other back strap and the other quarter out because it was so steep that I couldn't even, I couldn't budget. Like I could move the foot about four inches and it wasn't enough to to try to roll it over. And get the <laughs> order. Um, but then yeah. everybody, I said, I, I told them, I was like, man, I'm not going to ask anyone to help. Like if, if they choose to, that's on them. But I know I killed this in a spot where people shy away from. And so this is on me. Yeah. And the next morning I wake up and there's like five other people that woke up 
and they're all loading up their gear heading out to help me out. And so it was a pretty cool deal. Oh, it's wonderful. That's, that's so funny that, you know, so many people wanted to join in and help out. You didn't even have to carry any meat out. Oh yeah. All it's gear. It's always interesting. I, I have at this point, I have carried more meat out for other people than I have of my own. And everyone's like, all right, man, you got the head. And I'm like, that's it. Like, that's all I have to carry. And, you know, dragging a whitetail out of the, out of a 40 acre woods doesn't seem like a whole lot of work. And just the head on an elk trying to duck underneath cedar branches and push through scrub oak and go uphill on a mountain when the skull's poking you in the back of the neck and in the back of the head. Holy cow, dude, that is, I mean, you just like doubled your, you doubled your body, uh, with, and now you're trying to get through these same tight spaces just to get back to the side by side. Yeah, no, pack outs are definitely always interesting. And, uh, you know, not everybody with having help like that, you know, not everybody draws tags out West every year because it is like a lottery system for most hunts. So I didn't draw any tags this year. So I just wanted to go on hunts this year and just help other people and just like get out and be a part of it. And, uh, you really got to have like a good frame backpack. Like if you're really going to put boots on the ground and not be such like a road hunter, like some guys and you want to get out there, like you're saying you were doing, like, I feel like you just need a good, good frame backpack just something that's reliable so if you know you do get something down you can get it out of there okay not have to struggle too bad because it's really just dead weight for the most part um and you know we would need all the help we can get i even was looking into getting a mule like an actual animal mule to like for packing but i don't know too much about them yet and i'm still just doing a little homework on those things just to see what they're all about See, when, when you can get other animals involved into it, like I, I talked to houndsmen and just seeing their passion for ha- watching the dogs work. And I'm sure it's the same thing when guys get mules or horses or alpacas or goats, you know, like it, it just adds a whole nother element to it. And I feel like that would be pretty cool. Like you're taking care of these animals all year long for them to help you do a job for a few weeks out of the year yeah and then you get them out and you actually see them at work and it makes your job easier i mean there's there's the elements of well now you've got to have food for them you got to find water for them you know you got to make sure your load's secure there's a lot of extras to it but at the end of the day there's there's no substitute for not having to uh carry 60 pounds of meat on your back up and down mountains all day long yeah, make it easier if we can, right? Oh yeah. So you mentioned that you didn't draw any tags this year. Uh what what hunts for you in Arizona are over the counter or do you get to do every year? Yeah, every year, I mean, <clears throat> I didn't draw any lottery tags, but every year you can hunt deer and javelina. Um, over the counter so you can just buy your tag at like walmart or a grocery store or dick sporting goods or any sporting goods store and you can hunt from the cow in arizona it's a calendar year so it goes from january 1st to the end of the month and then the archery season picks up back again in august at the end of august in the, the middle of september and then it starts off again last friday it did for the end of the year for december so it was in from friday i forget what day friday was until december 31st and you can hunt most areas in the state 
uh, this year in Arizona, they started calling in kills and they're limiting the number of uh, archery deer harvests that you can have. So every Wednesday they'll put out like a memo and it's on social media or the website of how many tags are left in a certain unit. And that's the first year of them doing it. And I think there's only one or two units closed um, way out east against the New Mexico border, which is, I think it's one in 27 that might be closed, but I don't go out there anyway to hunt. And, um, but yeah, over the counter deer and over the counter uh, javelina. A lot of guys go down south to go chase coos bucks, which are those small white tails with the gray ghost nickname. Yeah. And the mule deer are just everywhere else. And I do get to do that every year. And, you know, using a bow and getting in bow range is, you know, so much more intimate and difficult. Like you really got to be a quiet little ninja out there, you know, scaling the mountains and playing the wind. You really got to, uh, you know, know how to get close to an animal. Cause anybody really, I mean, I'm not opposed to gun hunting, but you can pull a trigger from really, really far away and that's super easy, but yeah. to get in the bow range and to get up in its kitchen and to arrow it is, uh, pretty special, at least to me anyway. But, um, it's pretty awesome when you can get that close, you know, oh, to yeah. a wild animal. Well, and <laughs> so, so for deer, it's over the counter, but it's, a limited quota and you just have to basically keep up with that to make sure that they haven't filled the quota yet. Um, but Correct. with, with the, with the archery hunting out there, I mean, like you said earlier, you had a single pin, you only needed it to shoot out to 20 yards, you know, because of the, the woods were so thick and, and the deer would come in and there were so many of them. What, uh, what did you change on your setup when you moved to Arizona and you're chasing them in this big open country? Yeah. Yeah. I bought a, uh, a longer length bow altogether just cause it's a little bit more stable for, uh, those long distance shots. And my, um, my site, I have 20 through 60 on my site and then anything over 60, I can dial it into the exact distance. And, uh, I just use my bottom pin, which would be my 60 pin. So my complete setup even changed and, I've never, growing up in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, I've taken an archery lesson from a professional. But when I moved out here, uh, the Arizona Archery Club was right down the street from my house, and they have professionals there. And I was like, I've had a lesson before. Hell, see what I can, you know, see what it's all about. And I was shooting tighter groups in like five minutes. So I really, when I say I learned how to hunt again, I also learned how to shoot my bow all over again. Because when you're shooting from, I don't know, 70 yards or 80 yards, if you're willing to take a shot like that, if you practice that regularly, you really need to work on your form and your mechanics. But, um, but yeah, I start my pins at 20, they go to 60, and then anything over 60, I just dial it in, and I use that bottom pin. And, uh, you know, I don't want to take far shots, but if it's a good deer and I'm confident because, you know, I practice, you know, 60 through... 80, 90, a lot, you know, I'm, yeah. I have a range right at my house that goes out to a hundred yards. And, uh, you know, my goal is to get a lot closer than, you know, 60 yards if I can, but sometimes you can't, and you know, you don't get opportunity out here that much The opportunity to pull back on your bow or something like that. Isn't very often, you know, if I was, uh, you know, hunting with my friends, like we were this past weekend, you know, I'm excited cause I got to knock an arrow you know, 
or yeah. like something like that. You're like, I got close enough. I put an arrow on my rest, you know? So, um, we just practice those long range, long ranges. And I use one of those black gold, um, sites and, you know, you can just wheel it into whatever, uh, whatever distance, you know, whatever distance it is. And that works pretty well for me out here anyway, as far as my setup goes. Yeah, that's handy. I mean, those black gold sites and any of the quick adjustment sites where you can go from, you know, like you said, uh, 60 and anything up from there, you can do exact yardages. I've got a single pin still, but the type of setup that you're talking about where you're, you've got a multi-pin, but then you can also do quick dial adjustments. Uh, that's something that I'm going to look into switching to this year because I would love yeah. to not have to have that extra step messing with my bow changing changing the yardage especially when i hunt here in missouri you know most of the shots that i get are inside of 40 yards and so if i don't have to change it from 20 to you know 33 that would be so much better if i just had an extra pin or a couple extra yeah. pins on that yeah a lot of guys out here that don't have a movable rest like i do for shots over a certain distance They'll just run a five pin setup. I have a couple of friends who do that. They have five pins and they'll just make their first pin 30 yards. So 30 through 70, that's pretty reasonable. If it was anything over 70, like an 80 yard shot, maybe, or 75, maybe just put that 70 pin right on its back or right up on its spine, you know, and uh, yeah. they'll just use that as their wheelhouse for shooting anything because, you know, I mean, unless you're hunting javelina, you're probably not going to get a 20-yard shot at anything, um, or it's very, very rare. Or if you do, you know, kudos to you for getting in that close. But, uh, you know, that's a definitely another option is uh, just five pins and just make your first one 30, and then your last one will be 70. Nice. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I mean, to have that set up in, like you said, to get into 20 yards is, I mean, it's crazy. I saw that with my friend Linnea this year. We went out to Utah, and this is the first archery mule deer hunt that I had been a part of. But I've hunted, I've hunted out in the West enough to where I could give her some pointers and I could, you know, try to get on some animals with her. And uh, all of her friends, all of the people that she knows that hunts, they're like, you've got to have a long range. Like, you have to be able to shoot. A, a great distance because to get inside a 40 on a mule deer is going to be challenging. And we're like, okay, whatever, yeah. whatever. And it's we different. get out there and the closest mule deer that we had to us were like does and fawns at 700 yards for a couple days. It just <laughs> didn't seem like we could find anything. And then uh, we shifted where we were glassing from and we were just glassing or we were basically hunting one big Valley but the terrain features and the the topography, it changed so much in that valley that it's like you could move a quarter mile and it seemed like a whole different world that you were hunting. And so we ended up shifting down and we ended up spotting, I want to say it was like seven bucks this one morning and or this one evening. And we're like, all right, we're going to come sit up here. We're going to glass. And we end up getting on these on these mule deer bucks. And she she had set a limit for herself for 40 yards that she could shoot. She had a shoulder injury and she had been practicing and trying to extend her range and bump up her poundage. And then she had a shoulder injury, which kind of set her back a couple weeks. And so she's like, Hey, 40 yards. I'm like, awesome. You know, we've got our work cut out for us, but we're going to do our best. And 
we end up getting she stalked into this bedded buck and it was a really nice mule deer um stalked into a bedded buck at like 15 yards and wow. i'm sitting here watching this whole thing i can see the top of its ears and its antlers and i can see her right in front of it and she's slowly creeping up this hill and she turns and looks at me and i'm like you're from where i was it looked like she was eight yards away and so i'm signaling to her like <laughs> draw back draw back like stand up and shoot this thing yeah. and she drew back and she stood up and when she stood up she still didn't have a shot at anything except the back of the head and the neck and uh it turned its head looked at her stayed bedded down turned its head and looked at her for like five to six seconds and then it went from bedded to a full sprint it never like stood up and looked at her it just like boom rocketed out of the bed but both of us were like that right there that is a feat i mean that feels like a successful hunt just to be able to get that close to a buck in this kind of country and then to top it off, we had six bed or we had six buck encounters within an hour and a half, all within 70 yards. And that's pretty awesome. I, I told her, I said, just so you know, this will probably never again happen in your entire hunting life. Like this <laughs> was this was special. Yeah. And it was a ton of fun. We never did end up uh filling a tag, but it was the hunt of a lifetime. I mean, it was such a good time putting on the miles, glassing that much country. And so I, I totally understand that, man. Like being out there and just getting that close to an animal feels like success or knocking an arrow. Yeah. You feel like you've done something right. Yeah, no, it's still, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like outsiders that don't understand hunting or hunters would be like, you didn't kill it, you know, like, aren't you sad or disappointed? But, you know, you're like, not actually the complete opposite. Like you're like, I was, you, you get so stoked just because you got that close to you know, said animal or whatever deer it was like, it is not easy to do. And if it was easy, everybody would probably archery hunt and do spot and stalk, but it's, uh, it's well, it just wouldn't be sure. as fun either. Yeah. I mean, like if you, if you could guarantee, I talked with a buddy about this the other day, I was like, if you guaranteed that you were going to kill an animal every single time you went out and it was just a hundred percent success rate for everybody, there's no challenge to it. And so the accomplishment doesn't feel nearly as great when you do have that, yeah. that successful hunt and people, people who don't hunt out West, you know, some, a lot of times I know people that fill their tags every single year hunting up in Wisconsin. And that's amazing. And yeah. I'm, I'm super pumped for them. In fact, I go up there and fill tags every year in Wisconsin also. But when you have a drought where like you go two, three years without, taking a shot or drawing back or anything on an animal when it does come together. Oh man. Imagine three to four years of frustration and failure all <laughs> to culminate on yeah. one, one deer that has no idea that you just made uh, that. It just made your decade by being in the right spot and not taking off before you got close enough. Yeah. Yeah. I, I look at it this way, dad, and like, you know, you're not going to have a lot of opportunity or I don't think you will out of like, you know, our life on earth here, we're not the times when we're actually successful hunting. It's not very long at all. Like when you have an animal on the ground, um, those are like precious minutes and hours together. <laughs> not yeah. like, like, you know, like it doesn't happen often. And, uh, 
99% of the time, like I said earlier, you're failing at whatever it is. It's fun to fail because it's exciting to get that close. But when it does happen, it's just so special because everything comes together. And uh, it's just awesome when it does work out for anybody. Oh, yeah. I, I'm curious. It'd be it'd be a pretty cool survey to do across the country. You know, you go state by state and just find out how many hours a year people have deer within range or elk within range or, you know, they're they're close enough to make a play on something. And then on top of that, how how many hours a year do people spend dragging a deer out of the woods or packing it out? And then you multiply that out by the average life and you take away the years that you can't hunt early and when you're too old to hunt. And, you know, we'd probably be pretty surprised. The amount of time that we're actually that close to wild animals or packing them out is probably like less than 80 hours of our entire life. Yeah. And yeah, it's not a lot of, it's not a lot of time. Yeah. And so you think like two, two work weeks is all you get spread out over, you know, 50 years. If you hunt that long, it definitely makes it a lot more precious when you're in the moment. Oh yeah, for sure. That's why like whenever we do have anything down, like I really try to do my best to take care of the meat, you know, the best, like as, as best as I can, you know, because however it is when you're field dressing it until it's on your plate and you're getting ready to eat it, everything in between is really important on how you uh, take care of stuff. Cause you know how people say like, Oh, this tastes gamey. Well, it could taste gamey because it wasn't cared for properly. And, uh, you know, or seasoned right or whatever it may be. I mean, there's a lot that goes into taking care of the meat from like, you know, once it's down to when you're eating it. All right, guys. So gift season and the holidays are upon us, which means you need to start thinking about filling the gap underneath the tree and stuffing the stocking full. Luckily, Vortex has a large line of optics and apparel that meet every gift need in your life. A couple great stocking stuffers are the Procar window mount or the Venom Red Dot. I've got the 3MOA version and absolutely love it. If you're looking for that gift that's gonna wow the outdoorsman or woman in your life, check out the Razer HD spotting scopes or the Ridgeview carbon fiber tripod. But don't forget their amazing line of apparel either. Some of my favorite pieces are the Shed Hunter Pro jacket and the Sun Slayer hoodie. So for all of your gift needs, check out what's new from Vortex at vortexoptics.com and head to your favorite Vortex dealer to make sure you're ready for everything fall can throw at you. It's cool to, it's cool to watch professionals process animals and like watch exactly how they dissect every little bit and separate every cut of meat and the care that goes into it. And honestly, I don't know that I had a great appreciation for that up until I lived on a property and this guy raised pigs on it and I would help him cut those up. And when we would go to harvest it, like the precision that he did, that he had when he was dealing with the meat and even just like getting all the hair off of it, that water temperature had to be within like five degree span. Otherwise it was more difficult to get the hair off the way that you bleed the pig out right away when you shoot it, you know, that releases a lot of that, uh, the, the tough muscle tissue, it relaxes everything. And so watching that, I was like, man, to be a student of this, especially like in, in Western States where you might only 
successfully harvest an animal once every five years, you don't want a single ounce of that to go to waste. You know, you, you might not get more mule deer meat for two more seasons where <clears throat> yeah. I feel like growing up, no, I growing did, up hunting in Wisconsin, you know, like we shoot five to seven deer on opening weekend and then we take them all to the processor and they deal with it. But to actually be a part of the entire process and to understand how you're taking care of it and to know that it was cared for in the best way possible and that you got every ounce of meat off of it that you could, that, that adds a whole nother level of, um, intimacy to the hunt. For sure. I harvested my first archery elk in 2020 and, uh, I have a, uh, a old refrigerator freezer that I busted out the middle and I use it for really just hanging deer and elk and javelina. And, uh, I got a local, there's a butcher in my town and I got the local butcher and I said, Hey, I'll throw you cash. Can you come over my house in my garage and help me, uh, you know, butcher up this elk. And it took us two, it took us four days, two full weekends, like six hours a day for two weekends in a row. And this guy was an artist with, uh, the knife. What he did, he made Asobuco cuts. He told me exactly what this cut was and how to cook it, do it on the smoker or whatever it was, pot roast, crock pot. Having a butcher, it, I felt like I had a guide for butchering an animal. And uh, it was an amazing experience. It was almost like watching an artist like you know, do his thing. But he was an artist with the knife. And uh, some of the things he was doing and how you know, particular and delicate. And, you know, he was, he had a lot of attention to detail to say the least, but it was an experience and a half because usually, you know, you drop it off at the processor, you get it, it's in the, you know, boxes and completely frozen. You're like, what happened in between there? You know, or yeah. some people might be like, is this my animal? You know, there's a lot of that. I've never heard of that before. Like, is this even my elk or my deer? You know, but I'll tell you what, doing an elk at home, I would probably just take it to the processor again because it takes so long it is so much work. You really have an open schedule and I got two young kids in diapers, so I don't have that kind of time anymore. No, um, no we had a, I mean, but yeah. before I jumped in with the group that I elk hunt with, they had, they had been processing all of their elk by themselves. And I mean, they're shooting multiple elk throughout the week, um, during rifle season. And so I move out there, I get in with this crew and they're like, man, we're taking everything to the processor. And I was like, really? You guys don't process your own? Like, dude, I just got into it with Whitetail and it's a ton of fun. And it's just cool to be part of the whole experience. And they're like, man, we loved doing it. But when you show up with five or six elk on a trailer from elk camp and you, st you might start out with 20 guys there, but by the end of the night, there's only three of you and there's half the animals still left. I was like, yeah. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. I'd definitely take it to the processor too. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I watch a ton of um, like on, on social media, on Instagram, the bearded butcher. I watch a lot of his stuff and just watch how he, you know, picks apart each cut of meat and he tells you what they are and what they're used for. And um, I think, I think what you did sounds like a really awesome time. And I'm going to have to get all the guys together here that I hang out with and hunt with. And maybe we'll have to hire someone to come out and just show us exactly how to do 
every cut of meat and yeah. how, like what, what you can use them for what's best for, you know, fajitas versus roast versus, um, tacos or steaks or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Doing, having the butcher come over and him giving me like butchering one oh one lesson was awesome. And he'd be like, here's this roast, wrap it in bacon, throw it on the smoker two and a half hours, you know, or like he was doing stuff like that. And I was like, this is freaking awesome. Yeah. You know, it was great to have him uh, just direct and tell me what to do. But like I said, after that, it was such a long process that I'd probably just take another up to a processor <laughs> unless, you know, get, unless we get the butcher again and, you know, you really want to make it special. Cause I set up like a whole, like I made like a whole setup in my garage and, you know, I was, we were ready to go, but you know, if I shoot a deer or something, like I'll just do a deer myself. I have a meat grinder. I get dehydrator to make jerky. And, uh, it's not that bad, but the elk is just so big and just so much that, uh, you know, a deer is more manageable for sure. Oh yeah. Yeah. You, you have to have a team of people for something the size of an elk. And honestly, it helps <laughs> even just with a deer, you know, to have one person cutting yeah. off silver skin is the other one's putting it through the grinder is the other one's, you know, yeah. Twisting I, up the bag. I was on the, uh, zip tie on yeah, I was on the freezer bag, sucking all the air out. I must've did that for like four or five hours straight. Like it was just, <laughs> you know, over and over again, you know, redundant, but it was super fun though. Great nice. experience. Uh, so, so down in AZ, you can hunt deer every year. What what tags are you putting in for each year, though, that you're hoping to draw? Um. Well, after I had my experience with by hunting archery elk, I made a promise to myself never to put in for a rifle again until you know my knees are bad or something like that. Like yeah. uh, it was such a amazing experience. Um, it was just awesome. When I shot my bull elk, I had my buddy behind me raking a tree and uh, it sounded like there was another bull up in this bull's kitchen and I had all these little oak saplings around me and I could see the elk in the background and I ranged some trees and stuff in front of me and I was like, all right, that's like 30 yards. Okay, I know that's at least pretty close. And it just, once he heard that raking of the tree, he was just screaming like crazy and I shot him at like, you know, 19 or 20 yards, like walking, like right towards me. Oh and, gosh. uh, the experience of that, I can never replicate that. I mean, we're talking about how often are we going to have an animal down in the field and those precious minutes or packing something out or, you know, just being around it or being in stalking distance, you know, like how about what's the amount of time of your life on earth here when you're going to hear a bull elk bugling right in your face from very close and you can feel it in your chest like your heart's gonna pop out of it like i'm archery elk all day long like yeah. you can just hear from how i'm talking like it was such a game-changing experience like hearing bugles like it makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up uh the night before i shot my elk i shot my elk in the morning but the night before we got on a ridiculously big bull it must have been three 360 370 maybe and I had no shot because there's a tree in my way, but it was probably a blessing because I could not stop my right leg from shaking at all. <laughs> like, I don't think I would have been able to shoot anyway. And it was my first really close encounter of like an elk just screaming in our face, like under 40 yards. And this rack was wider than I am tall. Like it was enormous. And, uh, Jeez. you know, he was peeing all over the ground, like that real aggressive peeing. Cause he's like, I'm up in here. These are my girls. 
and, you know, stay the hell away. And, uh, it was a great experience. And I think because I was so nervous that time, the next morning when I did shoot my elk, man, I was cool as a cucumber. I was not nervous or anything. I made a good shot. It only went 40 yards and dropped. I mean, it really helped me for the following morning to like, you know, not get buck fever or, you know, like get too nervous and shaky. I was really, really calm and it all worked out. But archery elk is, uh, you know, what I'm all about right now. And, uh, I was able to shoot a, uh, antelope last year with a muzzle loader. So now I'm going to try for archery antelope this year, but it's so hard to draw tags. Sometimes, um, you really got to do anything you can to, you know, increase your chances. So out here, if you get your hunter safety, you get an extra bonus point every single year for whatever you put in for. Oh, and nice. also if you put in for five, yeah. Yeah. So they give you a little incentive to get your hunter safety. And sometimes like if people don't have it, I'm like that hunter safety bonus point that I have, that could have been my low lucky number that I, you know, that could have been my, my, uh, my number that got picked for, so I can actually go hunting. So anything you can do to increase your chances is awesome. And also, if you put in for the same species five years in a row, you get a loyalty point. So you can, um, I have both of them for almost every animal. So even after I do shoot, um, like an antelope or an elk or whatever it is, I start again with two bonus points already. And then my current application is, uh, you know, another chance to get a tag also, but the archery elk is, uh, is where it's at. And hopefully I draw another one this year. And uh, we're going to start putting in for that in January here. So it's right around the corner. So the new regulation should be coming out and everybody can start looking uh, to see where they want to hunt. And, uh, you know, usually you get five choices in Arizona. Really, your first two are going to be the cho- your hunt choices that will get picked. So for your first choice, um, because by the time it's like three, four and five, like, you know, all the tags are already um, accounted for. Yeah. But, um, your first choice, your first choice, you usually put in for a dream hunt, like a really hard, uh, hunt to draw, but it's excellent, excellent hunting and enormous elk in that area. And then your second choice is more realistic. And that's probably the hunt that you will get unless literally you win the lottery and you get that awesome first choice of a hunt. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm not going to try to shoot another elk with a rifle until, uh, so I, until I need to, and I can't chase animals anymore because I have two knee replacements and a hip or something like the rest of the old men that I know. <laughs> yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. The, uh, man, the, the thrill of that, I can only imagine. I've never been that close to a bugling bull. You know, I've seen him from across the valley and that alone is enough to get me hooked, but to actually have one coming yeah. in screaming, aggressive, ready to fight. Oh man. It yeah. seems like, and because, of, yeah, because of something you're doing, like my buddy was raking a tree with an enormous stick and this bull just got so pissed off. And I was like, Oh my God, look at this thing. He's coming right in. Like, I couldn't believe it. Like it was just the wildest thing in the world. And until you experience it, you know, it's, uh, it's not really, can't really explain it too well. I did have a friend that I was guiding on a hunt, um, maybe a month and a half ago. It was a cow hunt. And it was toward the end of the rut, but they're still bugling out there. And so it's easy to locate them. And even just him being out there, even though it was a cow rifle hunt, is a great hunt as like a stepping stone for a new hunter. But they're bugling and they're all around us. And 
I'm just trying to bugle, do a little cow call to locate him and then maybe bring him in a little. And, uh, it's just, if you're in the woods in the middle of September to the middle of October, it's awesome. And usually, you know, that's for an archery hunt, uh, here in Arizona. So yeah, the archery elk's where it's at all day long. How, uh, how often do you expect to draw those tags or how often have you in the past to actually get an, uh, uh, an archery elk tag? It, again, it definitely depends on what hunt you put in for, but, um, I hunt, the hunt I got was up on the, uh, muggy on rim it's called. Um, it's this big shelf that runs from Flagstaff all the way into New Mexico, about South, South East. And, uh, it's this big mountain range and I hunt up there and maybe like every, like three to five years, you know, okay. I've seen people draw tags back to back. You know, people draw tags back to back with no bonus points. I mean, that definitely can happen. But, um, you know, usually every three to five years, you can go elk hunting. Um, as long like some people, you know, wait their whole life. And I don't really think like this at all. But some people, you know, that I talk to, there'll be a young guy like me. I just turned 40 in August. You know, they'll be like, oh, I have like 19 bonus points for unit one or unit 23, which are premier elk units in Arizona but I don't want to wait my whole life just to go hunt elk once. Like I'd rather have it be a harder hunt, get tags and be able to go hunting now while I still can. Cause I know my body's going to start falling apart no matter how much, you know, you exercise father time's going to win right there. So, yeah. you know, I, I want to go hunting while I can, I want to get tags while I can. Um, with some of my friends that do live in Pennsylvania, I've been encouraging them to put in for these, quote unquote, limited opportunity hunts here in Arizona, because if you're an out of state guy and you're putting in for Arizona, they're going to cap the tags to 10% for out of state people. So if there's a hundred tags, only 10 out of state guys are getting tags. And that gives you, in my opinion, no chance to go hunting. You yeah. know, you can make that your first choice if you're an out of state guy, but these limited opportunity hunts, uh, everybody's equal. There's no cap for out of state people. So that's what I usually recommend my PA folks to put in for. And it's like a bunch, it's a multi-unit hunt over five weeks, but there's not a lot of elk in the area. That's why they give it that limited opportunity name and everybody shies away from it. But in this area where there are not a lot of elk, and you really got to work your butt off to find them. If you do find a bull, it's going to be a nice one. And uh, yeah. it's, a, it's a good way to go because at least you can go hunting and not have to wait like 15 or 20 years just to have one crack at it. You know, I just want to go every year. Give me the worst tag you have, Arizona, and I'll find a way to make it happen, you know? Yeah, that's, I, I definitely fall into that camp. Do I want to go and hunt like the best unit in the country or the best unit in any given state for an elk? Yeah. But would I rather hunt every other year or every five years for the rest of my life than get that? one tag one time i'm i'm definitely the guy that wants to get out and hunt and so that's where for me like i love i love going to rifle camp with my buddies out in colorado and that's that's a hunt that i probably won't miss again and so i've basically written off colorado as an archery state because i'm going to go and hunt with these guys during during rifle season and so now i'm looking yeah. at what other states should i be putting in for you know, there's Eastern states now, uh, actually Pennsylvania, uh, has elk and they've got an elk season and obviously they don't give out nearly as many tags and 
uh, but like Kentucky and Arkansas started, Missouri, Wisconsin, some of these states are only for residents, but as the years go on and as organizations like RMEF keeps doing work and increasing the population and the herd size, like it's going to start opening up to where I feel like in our kids' lifetime, we'll probably see elk hunting opportunities in 90% of this lower, lower 48, um, which I think is yeah. super cool. But also right now there's a ton of opportunity for people to get out and do these different hunts. Like there's over the counter archery tags in a lot of Western States right now, you're going to pay for it as a non-resident. But yeah. if it's something that you're interested in doing and not waiting for 20 years, like I'm, I think I'm going to try to get on an archery elk hunt up in Wyoming this year. And I'm going to increase my list of, of States that I put in for from, you know, four states to hopefully around a dozen and I can start building points. And that way, you know, maybe every two years I get to go and hunt one of these states in, in a better unit. So, uh, there's definitely ways to play the system, but man, it gets intimidating. Each state has different regulations, requirements. They've got different dates that you have to apply by, uh, the draw draw results come out at different times. There's different antler restrictions. It's, it's definitely an undertaking just trying to figure out how to play the game of getting a tag. <laughs> yeah, it's like a whole homework assignment. And, uh, you know, out here, I feel like in my situation, you know, I got young kids and I'm trying to like read, like fix up a house and everything. Like I don't have, I would never have enough time to like, you know, go out of state or I don't feel like I could. Cause there's just, you got to know so much and you want to know the rules and regulations first and foremost, you know, you don't want to know, there's just a lot of information you got to gain. And I feel like Arizona can keep me busy for a very, very long time. And at least I'm in state and it's somewhat local, even if I am going like three or four hours away, but uh, I would love to go out of state one day, but you know, I don't think that's going to happen unless there's like a special trip planned or something like that, just because I got too much going on in Arizona and uh, Arizona hunting can keep me busy for a long time out here. Oh yeah. The hardest thing I do every year is leave the whitetail rut to go and chase elk. Don't get me wrong. I love (laughs) chasing elk, but also the whitetail rut is like that special week or special couple weeks when, you know, you're going to see some of the bucks that you've only ever seen on camera at night. And man, that's been difficult, but luckily I've been trying to get out a lot more early season. And so I had success early season. And so it didn't make it as painful being gone during the rut this year. Um, but man, I, I'd encourage anybody listening, find a state, do your research, look up the draw, draw odds and success rates and, uh, find a state that, you know, you're going to spend the next two, three years learning, saving up for a hunt and go check it out because there's a lot of opportunities out there for all of us that are at our fingertips and if we prioritize them a little bit like you can make it happen and it might not be something that you do every year but you know every five ten years to get out on an awesome hunt and experience new country uh different animals and how they behave elk you know they've got similar tendencies a lot of places but there are some places you go and they just don't seem to be crazy pressured or you know you're gonna see the smallest bull you see in one unit might be the biggest bull you'd see anywhere else that you go and hunt. So, um, yeah, 
yeah, that's definitely something that I'm going to be focusing on. And then just getting out and like, I, I tell people all the time, if you're going on a vacation somewhere, find out what's open, even if it's coyote and <laughs> bring your rifle with like when, when my wife and I travel, I bring my guns with everywhere we go. And if, if I can sneak away for an afternoon and just pay for a three day small game license and go shoot a coyote or go shoot some doves or something like my goal is to hunt in every 50 States. I want to do it by the end of my life. And I want to, you know, even frog gig or whatever it is. Like I want to take an animal in every state. I feel like that'd be fun. Yeah. When my old lady and I, when we got married, we honeymooned in Maui and I was like, I think there's access deer somewhere close. There's definitely hunting in Hawaii. And she shot that down pretty quickly. But I was like, you know, I would kind of think the same way whenever I go back East, uh, even Pennsylvania for like a wedding or whatever the event may be. I'm if it's, if it's fall, I'm bringing my bow with me in exactly the same way. Yeah. What, uh, what do you have next on the list or what, what's coming up for you down there in Arizona that you're going to chase after? Uh, well, my archery stuff usually stays in my truck from, uh, you know, last Friday around like the 11th or the 10th archery season started and it won't leave my truck until the end of January. Um, so I'll be chasing mule deer locally here, like before or after work during the week. And then on the weekends, um, like this weekend, I'm venturing uh, back north. I hunt outside of Selegman um, in a unit that's right underneath the Grand Canyon. And it's open archery season right now out there. And all the deer are uh, starting to rut out here. Um, I was just up there last week and I helped my buddy, uh, Larry, harvest uh, maybe like a 190-inch buck. Jeez. And uh, I'm going... I'm, I'm going, yeah, that was, he, uh, every year Gavin Fish puts out uh, a select number of rifle tags in December. So that's a very, very good uh, hunt to have. In this hunt, there was only 15 tags and it goes on from like the 9th or the 10th until the end of December, the same exact time as over-the-counter archery. But, you know, in, in only a few units in Arizona and only a few tags in those units, they can shoot him with a gun and uh we got it done on uh saturday morning and uh it was a, such a monster buck it was the biggest buck i've ever seen in my life <laughs> um i just haven't been around a lot of big bucks i think but uh i know it scored over 190 and it was just a beautiful four by four with the biggest swollen neck i've ever seen in my life and Jeez. uh it was just a wild hunt but yeah i'll be hunting archery deer and javelina uh until the end of January, pretty much. And I'll be hunting everywhere. And uh, it's so fun because at my house here, like you can hunt right out of my house where I live because there's state trust land around. But I have some friends from, you know, other parts of Arizona and even from California. And my house is like hunting headquarters. And my wife even likes having everybody over at the house because we all like, you know, have a couple beers at night, share dinner together, share our successes, kind of figure out what we want to do for the next morning. And it's kind of like hunting headquarters over here. And there's like hunters like sleeping on the floor, on the couch, they're everywhere. And uh, it's super fun. It's a great, it's a great time. But for the rest of this year, uh, archery deer and archery javelina. Dang, that's cool. Javelina seem like they'd be fun to hunt. I mean, they just seem so wiry and like they, they spook easy, but to, to have it's just a weird looking animal you know like if i saw that here in missouri 
walking through, I'd be like, what am I looking at? Like, where am I hunting right now? Yeah. Um, that seems you like get to be a fun rat. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. With those, with those pigs, I mean, you can call them in. I have a predator call and, uh, you can make like a real raspy sounding sound. It sounds like, sounds ridiculously weird, but, uh, this sound is like they it brings them in so you can call have lena in if you have one of these calls and it works awesome and uh they'll either like well sometimes it also doesn't work you know just like with any call sometimes like they just run the opposite direction but if you get into them and like maybe you get a shot and then they spook and you want to bring them back as like a last resort type of thing that's when it really works like if you see them on the hillside you start cranking on this call you know they may not come in but if you're stalking up to them and you get into them and then they scatter, you know, then you can get, bring them back in for like a second shot. And I've Dang. got a bunch of javelina that way also. Oh man, that sounds like a ton of fun. And yeah, the bobcat, yeah, a lot of guys- the coyote all in that open country. I mean, I, I'm definitely not used to hunting predators like that or, you know, little giant rats like that. I feel like that'd be sweet. Do you have do you have something staked out as your like go-to bucket list hunt? If you, if I basically said, Hey, right now you're going to get gifted, whatever hunt you want, what species would it be? Where would it be? And what equipment would you use to hunt it? It would probably be a desert bighorn sheep because it's so hard to draw and they hardly put out any tags at all. Like I think they might put out like 40 tags like something very like one or two tags a unit if they have sheep in them and you know i would love to do it somewhere in northern arizona like maybe near the grand canyon and uh i'd like to use my bow i always would want to use my bow but uh i know that that would be like extremely difficult i'd probably bring my bow with me on my hunt and wind up using a rifle (laughs) yeah you know as much as i'd rather use the bow um, the bighorn sheep is just so impossible to draw and, uh, it's a lifetime tag out here. So you only get one, uh, per lifetime. So, I mean, that says it all right there. And I'd love to use my bow, but normally where these things live, not every, you know, it doesn't always work out that way, at least to like have, like to have with me, but yeah, bighorn sheep, Northern Arizona, and probably using a rifle. Um, back in 2017, I did get to draw a bison tag there are buffalo here in arizona up on the northern rim of the grand the northern plateau of the grand canyon and uh i was able to and that's also a lifetime tag so i was able to harvest an arizona bison oh my god um, a couple of years back and that was that was wild in itself um because the first part of it i was going back up i would just go up for the weekends and it started right around the middle of uh, November and then the hunt ended at the end of the year, New Year's Eve. But they give you that amount of time because normally by around Thanksgiving or early December, it snows so much that you can't get back there anyway, unless you have like a razor with tracks on it. Yeah, you know. So I was I was back there for the third weekend in a row. You know, I was leaving Thanksgiving early, driving through the middle of the night because to get to the North Rim of the Grand Canyon, it takes a while to get around that big hole in the earth. You know, you can either go through Las Vegas or you go around Marble Canyon and the Vermilion Cliffs, but it takes forever to get there. So once you're up there, like you need extra gas, extra tires, chainsaws, shovels, 
like a lot of survival stuff that you normally won't need. And it was also 9,000 feet elevation. So every morning it was like three degrees. And um, I was by my, I was by my, and there's like no service anywhere, but I was by myself um, up there hunting bison. And uh, <laughs> after I shot it and I got it down, I got maybe like the front shoulder off. And um, I went out, I had to drive like a couple miles just to text people that like, hey, I got a bison down you know, texting my wife and my dad, I'm not going to be home anytime soon, you know? And then I had them call some of my buddies that weren't too far away. And they were actually on a, a sheep hunt, like two and a half hours away. And I told them where I was and like where the bison was down. And a, <laughs> I shot this bison at like 4:45, like right before the sun was going down. And around 1130 at night, I'm still working on this thing, like freezing my ass off. And I see headlights <laughs> and I'm like, yes, the cavalry's here. Thank <laughs> freaking God. And, um, seeing those headlights come over the hill, I was like, it was like biggest relief just to have another person around because I had my yeah. phone, I was playing music, but you know, where I was, you know, I knew another guy that was in there also hunting bison. There are only six tags, but he saw a mountain lion there, you know, like a week earlier. And I was like, ah, I wish I just had like a person here, <laughs> like just to talk to or anything. Yeah. But, um, it was, it, it was wild. Once they came in and helped me, we got out of there by about two o'clock in the morning. And then we got back to their camp around four and, uh, they just took the next morning off and that's what it's like out here. You know, I've driven, you know, two hours. Cause one of my friends is like, Hey, I got an elk down and I need help. And I'll be like, I'm like, hold on. I'll be there in like two hours, you know, <laughs> or something like that. But um, those calls are the greatest thing to get though. Like, cause it, it, I'll get those calls randomly from my buddies and it's never, it's never anything like what you're dealing with or what Western hunters deal with, where it's like, man, I got to drive three hours. I got to hike in two hours. It's going to be an all night affair. <laughs> you know, my buddies are like, yeah. dude, I just shot this buck and I can drive my truck all the way out to it and hang out with them for a bit. But like just being a part That's of that, like fair. we talked about earlier, there's something, there's something different. Yeah. It's it's like a good emergency almost. Yeah, and, for like, sure. You can't wait to get. And a lot of the times, if you shoot anything in the afternoon or the evening, because of the packing out situation, like you're not coming out till like midnight, maybe or two a.m. Like a lot of the times, things go into the wee hours of the morning. By the time you're like driving back to camp or driving back home, just because of you know wherever it may die. You know, we've done a lot of animals at night, and then you know deal dressing it's one thing you know there's an hour or so maybe more you know then there's packing it out and hiking back and then driving you know there's a lot that goes into it um but it's worth it it's worth every second of sweat and no matter how tired you are you know everybody's usually jacked up because we just got it done and that doesn't happen that often no man a bison though geez that would be so <laughs> so crazy I mean, I've, I've seen them. I've been up close to them before, but just to think that you can go and hunt a wild bison in this country still, it, it blows yeah, my mind. I mean, awesome. South Dakota, I know, I think they've got a tag for it, but I want to say it's like $3,500 or maybe it's even more than that. Once you actually draw the tag, that's the cost as a non-resident to go into that state and hunt them. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. that's, that's a lot of money. I know that's a lot of money couple bucks there i mean there's five bows or something but you could um my my tag was about 650 bucks i believe 
for a resident. So that's still a lot. Um, yeah. And then I think, uh, it weighed maybe around like a little, like 1100 pounds, 1200 pounds. I got about 336 pounds of meat out of it. And, uh, those things have no fat on them and the fat they do have, it's like yellow, like bright, bright yellow color. Huh. So they had to add in like a ton of uh, beef fat to it, to like the ground meat and stuff like that. But, um, but yeah, I had a blanket made and I had the, I did a shoulder mount and the blanket is kind of cooler than the shoulder mount because it's fur was the longest and the thickest because it was winter because they yeah. eat hunt in the summer and they're more like patchy and their fur's not grown in. So it had like a really nice coat on it. The blanket is like, uh, it's just unbelievable. It's cooler than the shoulder mount and the shoulder oh. mount's pretty damn cool too. Dude, you <laughs> gotta have some space for that blanket. I mean, obviously the bed, but my, uh, so my wife's grandpa, he's passed now, but he would do civil war reenactments and, uh, mm-hmm. there were a bunch of different like native tribes that would come out and do different war reenactments with them. And he became great friends with some of them and they had traditionally killed this bison and they did like a ceremonial blessing over it and then gave him the, the rug from it. And so I actually, I actually have that uh, bison rug and I've only lived in one place where I could actually like hang it up on the wall because it's so huge. I mean, it took up the entire wall and so that's going to be yeah. definitely something that I have hanging once I we're, we're looking at property and wanting to build this year. And so I'm going to have my man cave with all my mounts and all like all my memorable things from different hunts. And then that bison is going to be up on the wall. But I'm like, dude, I I can't imagine hunting something like that. I for some reason, I feel like the larger you go when it comes to animals, the more insane the hunt seems like a moose. A bison, even elk, caribou, and then uh, yeah. you get over to Africa and you can hunt things that are, you know, yeah. blow your mind. So, uh, man, that's but, cool. And, and that that bison rug, I mean, I did a shoulder mount. So, like, when we, you know, were skinning it out and caping it, like half of the half the fur on that thing, half the hide went to the shoulder mount. I, the, my blanket's pretty much like the back half of the bison and it still goes over top of the back of a three person couch all the way to like the seat where the, your butt is. And then all the way back down the other side, almost to the floor. It's <laughs> enormous. Oh. Jeez. That's yeah. That that's a cool thing to have for sure. And, uh, Dude, it sounds like you've got it set up down there. You've got some pretty cool opportunities, and I feel like you and I could probably swap hunting stories and chat for another two hours. But uh, I know you've got places to get today, and um, yeah, dude, you've still got some hunting coming up this year, which is sweet. Uh, there's a lot of people right now that are kind of going through deer depression as rifle season just ended, and they're that, watching the end of I archery like season show up. But uh, I. Um, I'm hoping to get out. I'm hoping to get out and, uh, still tag another deer with my bow and hopefully on some of my travels, I can get out and, you know, if we make it down to Arizona, I'll definitely hit you up and we can go chase after something. Yeah. If you ever want to, you know, do some coyote calling or, uh, chase after some December, January mule deer or javelina, which is always the best time to do it. Cause that's when they rut. Um, 
I'll, I'll show you some shit and you'll probably come back next year. <laughs> Man, that sounds good. Yeah. I'll just have to add that to my yearly circuit that I do. Uh, that'd be yeah. fun. And you're, you're guaranteed a tag too. Oh, that's even better. Well, sweet man. Uh, thanks for hopping on. I appreciate you taking the time. And before we hop off, uh, where can people follow you? Where can they, where can they see some of your hunts or, you know, see some pictures of success? Uh, I'm, I'm just on Instagram. I'm at Tyrol, T-Y-R-O-L underscore hunts. And, uh, I'm really only on Instagram. I'm doing a little stuff on YouTube, but not, not really too much. But, uh, but yeah, I just put some of my kills and videos on uh, Instagram and, and that's really where I can be found on social media. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate it again. Good luck the rest of your season and, uh, we'll stay in touch. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate it. And that is going to wrap it up for today's show. Dang, what a sweet episode. And that gets me really excited about Arizona. To be honest, I always thought like, oh man, Arizona would be fun to hunt. But I hear stories about how long it takes non-residents to get tags. To find out that there's stuff that I can go and hunt there right now is really exciting. And I'm going to have to swing by there on one of my uh, road trips here soon and get out and try to chase after some of these animals. But like, there, there are certain podcasts that I do and certain people that I talk to where I walk away from it and I'm just like on a different level about being jacked about going out and hunting something. And this is one of those episodes, hearing the story about the bison and the elk and just all of the different things that he is out there hunting. There's so many cool hunting opportunities and even talking about this on a podcast and doing this for a living, sometimes I still just kind of get watered down to the idea that there there's hundreds of different species that we can get out there and chase after, maybe not hundreds. I don't know what the actual number is. There's a ton of different species that we can chase after. And so uh, I'm going to start looking. I'm going to hop online right now and take a look at different uh, dates and requirements as far as applications and preference points. And I'm going to get my list of states together today for next season. And hopefully I can start drawing some more out-of-state tags. So if you guys are out there, if you're out there chasing after animals, if you're in the southwest when the rut is really kicking off good luck hopefully you guys get that big buck coming in uh if you're starting your predator control if you're just trying to catch your big buck on trail camera that you don't know if you made it through rifle season good luck on that as well but until next time get out there and chase a new adventure